Hello, welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we bring you exclusive insight and stories from David and our team of writers. Coming up today, David will bring us the main lines from his weekly column, including details of a new deal for Danny Ings at Southampton. The Athletics' James Pearce will join us to discuss the impact of Liverpool's Virgil van Dijk's injury and the reaction from inside the club. We'll break down Saeed Benrahma's loan move to West Ham with Liam Toomey, who will also talk to us about Chelsea's defensive issues and also the Athletic exclusive on Antonio Rudiger. To read all the articles we discuss on today's podcast in full, simply head to www.theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and sign up for just £1 a month. So the top headline on The Athletic yesterday and and of the weekend in general really was the news that Liverpool defender Virgil van Dijk could be out for the rest of the season after sustaining a knee injury that now needs surgery. James Pearce has written a piece on The Athletic explaining what this injury means for the Premier League champions Uh, and James joins us now. Before we get on to their future without van Dijk, What's the latest as you understand it? Because all the statements seem very reluctant to put a timescale on this. Yeah, I think, well, the, the club's standpoint certainly is that, you know, they, they won't fully know until after he's had the surgery what the what the rehab programme is, is going to look like. I think, um, you know, they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna schedule that surgery uh, later on this week. I mean, I think a, a torn ACL, we know that it could be anything from seven months to, to nine months and so it's I, I think it's Liverpool are keen not to rule him out for the rest of the season and say there's still a chance but I'd be very surprised if we saw Virgil van Dijk back in a Liverpool shirt before next season. What level of bitterness James is there at Liverpool over this because it's not like he did anything wrong to sustain that injury. I, I think there's a huge amount of, of anger in more ways than one I mean anger of course because it was such an unnecessary incident. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't like it was a you know a fifty fifty challenge or anything like that. It was an absolutely reckless, dangerous challenge from from Jordan Pickford. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think he he went out to deliberately hurt Van Dyke. Um, you know, I haven't spoken to anyone at Liverpool who feels that way, but it was it, it was certainly very very dangerous. And it was always ran the risk of causing serious damage to an opponent when you lead with both feet like he did. And then obviously, I think what rubs salt into the wounds is the fact that it, it's gone completely and utterly unpunished, which is just baffling, really, when you think you know, it was for something that bad to, to put such a key player, you know, the, the finest in his position in, in world football out for what we think will be the rest of the season. Uh, and the person guilty of that challenge isn't, isn't going to serve any kind of suspension. If we look ahead to the rest of the season then and and accept that he's going to be missing for most of it. What's the feeling within the club about doing without him for a long period of time? It's going to be incredibly difficult. I think, you know, Liverpool lost key players en route to winning the league last season. You know, they, they were without Alisson for, what was it, the first nine, ten weeks of the season. Jordan Henderson had a, a had a long spell out. Fabinho was out for a significant period as well. But this, this is on a whole different level. I think no one's under any illusions that, you know, everything that Liverpool have achieved over the last two and a half years, Virgil van Dijk has been absolutely integral to that. I think he started... 93 successive Premier League games for Liverpool dating back to January 2018 so it's it really is uncharted territory you know in terms of now we will probably see you know exactly just how important Van Dijk is to Liverpool I mean it it puts a lot of pressure on Joe Gomez and Joel Matip 
two players who have had injury problems of their own in recent years. I mean, it's a remarkable stat that those two actually haven't started a Liverpool game together as the centre-back pairing. They, you know, they've, they've played together when Gomez has been at full-back, but not as, as the two centre-halves. And, you know, I think the worry for Liverpool is that neither of them are particularly dominant figures. You know, they've both probably benefited from having someone as vocal as, as Van Dijk alongside them. But, you know, both of those players are going to need to not only stay fit, but kind of find their voices and, and take on greater responsibility. He's not had a perfect start to the season, Van Dyke, but we know how colossal he is. It's like replacing the irreplaceable. But there was always a feeling in football, what happens to Liverpool if Van Dyke gets a bad injury? And do you think they could have recruited differently uh, in previous transfer windows to kind of uh, plan for an eventuality like this? Or is it virtually impossible to bring someone in of the required quality who's prepared to play second, third, fourth fiddle for the event of this happening? Yeah, I mean, of course, impossible to foresee something as, as devastating as this happening. And, and of course, you know, impossible to try and bring anyone in um, who, who gives you the, what Virgil van Dijk gives you. I think what what is, you know, un, undoubtable, and this isn't just with the benefit of hindsight, you know, written and said this many times over the summer that I thought Liverpool were gambling by not replacing Day and Lovren. Now, Day and Lovren was someone who divided opinion amongst Liverpool fans and, you know, there probably weren't too many tears shed when he was sold to Zenit St. Petersburg. But, you know, the reality is he he was the fourth centre-back. He played 15 games for Liverpool last season. So to not replace him and to go into the season with only three recognised centre-halves and, and have Fabinho as, as effectively the fourth-choice centre-back, uh, I think was a was a risk because, um, you know, Fabinho can play there. We saw, you know, he, he performed brilliantly there in the win down at Chelsea relatively recently. But, you know, I think when you look at how dominant he was in that holding midfield role in the Merseyside derby on Saturday, you, you know, inevitably... You know, I think he's now going to play a lot of his football this season at centre back because I just don't think Joel Matip, you know, even Joel Matip has went for a scan himself on Saturday evening due to tightness in his hamstring. He's, you know, the, the Saturday was the first time he's got through 90 minutes in the Premier League for nearly 12 months. So, um, you know, and, and obviously playing Fabino at centre half means you you miss his qualities in midfield. Yes, although I, I'm, we we still wait to know uh, the extent of Thiago's injury, don't we? Um, you you mentioned Allison, and there was similar doom and gloom at the start of last season when Allison was out injured, and and they rallied and and coped without him. I mean, Fabinho and and Joe Gomez as a central defensive partnership with Thiago and two others in a midfield three is not disastrous. Really? No, there is good news on Allison as well. Actually, that was you know, probably lost a bit amongst all the doom and gloom over Van Dyke. That you know, Klopp was was initially resigned to being without Allison till after the November international break. But he's he's made rapid progress in his recovery from a shoulder problem. He he should be back in training later this week, and Liverpool expect him to play again before the the end of October. Which you know, with a with a trip to the Etihad to face Man City on the horizon is a is a big boost. So. Yeah, you're right. They, you know, they did overcome huge setbacks last season. Um, you know, not least losing Allison on that opening night against Norwich, and then Fabino a couple of months further down the line. But I think it, this one just feels bigger to me in terms of just because of the influence and the leadership and the organisation and just everything that 
that Van Dijk gives Liverpool. And it's going to be intriguing to see how Klopp and Pep Linders' assistant handle it, because I think it might even lead to a, a slight change in style, because you know Pep Linders spoke relatively recently about how it's effectively Van Dijk's presence and his pace and his reading of the game that enables them to play with such a high defensive line. Um, and even last season, I think we saw them play with more control and discipline and take fewer risks and, and mm. sometimes in games hold on to what they had. I'm not sure whether they can do that without Van Dijk. So it you know it may well prove that attack is the best form of defence without him. Will he try kids? Um, I think he's going to have to at some point just with the looking at the schedule when, um, you know, I think Liverpool played play 17 Premier League and Champions League games before the January window opens when he could potentially do something about it by by spending some money. Um, so he does have some options. I think, um, you know, Reese Williams performed really well um, in the, the Carabao Cup games earlier on this season. He's someone who's impressed Klopp a lot. There's another teenager in Billy Cometio, a, a, a France youth international that um, was elevated to the senior setup in pre-season and, and, and but for... Uh, a minor injury he would have featured in the Carabao Cup as well, um, and then there's Nat Phillips, who's a, a, a you know probably the the older ones, the old, the eldest of the kind of the backup centre halves. He's 23 and spent a good chunk of last season on loan at Stuttgart in the in the second tier in in Germany. Um, but you know it's I I just think it's a big ask for any of those those three and you know probably Seth Vandenberg would be the fourth one the Dutch youngster it's you know they're they're all very unproven at at the highest level um you know I think for the most part it will be desperately hoping that that Matip and and Gomez can stay fit and that that Fabino does a job there um until that January window opens what do you think then for that January window if if you're not convinced by by the younger options do you think the club could invest potentially heavily in a centre-half. Yeah, I, I think it's something that they'll be giving serious attention to between between now and then, because I know in the in the summer they decided that in a, you know, with, with money being tight, that they've decided to channel their resources else, elsewhere. They they felt that, that clearly a backup left-back and, and strengthening the forward line and, and, and Thiago being almost too good a deal to, to, to turn down that... They, they, they prioritised other areas, which, you know, and of course, that was always going to rely heavily on could Van Dyke do it again? Could he be this, you know, this you know, almost, you know, this absolute rock who just played week in, week out regardless. But I think I think now losing him for such an extended period, um, you know, I'd be absolutely amazed if they didn't strengthen in the January window because, you know, unfortunately, I just don't think there's enough there to suggest that, that, that Matip is going to stay fit for an extended period um, and, and they are just so thin on the ground in that department. And I think you, you, you could have made a strong case for Liverpool needing to buy a centre-half in the summer. And I think you know the case for needing to go and buy one in January will be absolutely compelling. James, thank you very much for coming on. Appreciate it. Cheers, guys. Thanks, James. Thank you. And also, by the way, we ought to just say that uh, Alan Shearer has joined The Athletic, uh, mainly because he just appears to be following me around wherever I go. Uh, and this week writes about... Don't we all. It's embarrassing, David. <laughs> Honestly, can't shake him off. Anyhow, this week, Alan writes about the process of recovering from an ACL. Yeah, that's interesting because I noticed when Virgil van Dijk walked off the pitch that if this was an ACL injury, then surely he should have gone on a stretcher. Um, And I spoke to a couple of people in the medical world who said exactly the same. If it's a multiple ligament injury, then that sort of action 
straight after the the incident occurring. Of course, you don't know the exact prognosis at that point. Um, could potentially do further damage, and I'd be interesting to know, interested to know although, why he wasn't stretched off. Although I have been told, mm. and I can't remember who told me this, and I'm prepared to obviously be massively corrected by <laughs> members of the medical profession who know what they're doing, that when it is that that goes the ACL that that um you don't necessarily feel it right at the right at the start and actually that is why why there might be so much worry because you've hurt your knee but you don't feel it and then subsequently mm. you discover exactly what you've done so yeah. i i've never done it but it's not like the immediate pain of say breaking your leg no absolutely but in in receiving a few messages after the game suggested he should have just gone on a stretcher as a precaution in case it was that i i know that it's a very difficult sort of heat of the moment thing but um we certainly hope that it it hasn't been made any worse by the fact that he walked off the pitch. And you mentioned the Thiago injury very quickly after full time. It, it was relayed to me that that's not ACL, which is pretty obvious because he played on, uh, although some players have played on with those sorts of injuries. Um, and that sounds like, thankfully for Liverpool, it's not severe. And, and Thiago, of course, having spent a spell out recently with a positive COVID test, um, will want to get back on the pitch as soon as possible. He may miss the Ajax game in the Champions League, but then I think Liverpool will have him available again. Okay, well, on the basis that neither of us are uh, qualified doctors, should we move on? (laughs) I think so. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, the domestic transfer window closed last Friday. Uh, one of the last deals done saw West Ham take side Ben Rama on loan from Brentford. Uh, it went really close to the line, David, with this. You had plenty of updates, of course, across social media last week. Yeah, it was a really strange one, Ben Rama, because I think... West Ham had been the most likely destination for quite a while. There was other interest from the likes of Crystal Palace, Aston Villa, I think Fulham too. As it came down towards the deadline, West Ham were in pole position. I think the weekend before the Friday cut-off, they had reached an agreement of sorts with Brentford. I think it was £25 million plus £5 million in add-ons. So once he was back from international duty, they would need to sort out personal terms and undergo a medical and that that medical got delayed by a day it took place over two days I think Thursday going into the deadline on Friday and there were some suggestions that some problems might have occurred in the week itself actually it was reported that the deal was on the verge of collapsing because of an issue between Ben Rama and Brentford I don't know exactly what that was it seems to have been ironed out until this medical issue arose we don't know the precise nature of it and it's not fair for us to speculate we do know it it was around an issue to do with his blood and no more detail than that it was explained to me that that couldn't be resolved in time for the deadline there weren't the right specialists on hand or or something along those lines and so very quickly they needed to structure the deal it was agreed by both parties i don't know whether it became acrimonious behind the scenes but it was never expressed to me that this deal was in jeopardy of completely falling apart and that restructure went from the permanent deal five-year contract 25 plus five in add-ons to a loan deal 
uh, with an obligation to buy. Now, that loan deal was relayed to me as having a £4 million loan fee, then a £21 million guaranteed fee as part of the obligation, plus the £5 million in add-ons. So we get back to that 30 million figure. The only way, as I understand it, that that permanent deal won't take place is if something completely unexpected and severe happens related to this medical issue. But there is no anticipation of that happening. And all being well, uh, he will become a permanent West Ham player on a five-year contract in the summer of 2021. And Brentford will get their money. Well, let's bring in the Athletics. Liam Toomey has written a piece on what West Ham can expect with Ben Rama. Does he, does he feel a very West Ham player for you? He really does. Um, as much for his mindset, I think, as his talent. He's he's a natural showman, and when you think about West Ham as the club of Paolo Di Canio, of Joe Cole, and maybe more recently Dimitri Payet, I think Ben Rama certainly fits into that lineage. Uh, only time will tell whether he's as good or as impactful, but he's he's certainly an incredibly entertaining player to watch, and I think West Ham fans will have a lot of fun watching him this season and beyond. You mentioned in the piece, Liam, about his desperation to get to the Premier League. One of the clubs who were interested in signing him before West Ham did the deal were actually told he was prepared to drop his wage demands to see through a move in that final week. I don't know what happened in terms of the salary with West Ham, but that was indicative of his desire, which you write about in in a bit of detail. Ever since he got to England... Um, the Premier League has been the big carrot for him. And and I think Riyad Mahrez has, has often been held up as kind of the path that, that Ben Rama should follow. Another another really talented, skillful Algerian uh, who came to the Premier League maybe slightly later than, than some. Although, interestingly, Mahrez was two years younger than Ben Rama is now when he made his Premier League debut. Um, so that was always in, in Ben Rama's mind. And part of the extent of the desperation he showed towards the end of last season with Brentford on the final day against Barnsley and then in the playoffs as well was that he actually really wanted to to reach the Premier League with them he wanted to fulfill that dream with them I think he felt a close bond to the club that had given him a chance to establish himself in English football but he was determined fundamentally to play in the Premier League one way or the other and you might know more about this David but I think he was um reasonably close to, to, to a move last summer, uh, which which didn't go through. And then he picked himself up, had a very good season for Brentford. And then this window was always going to be the one where he was going to try and make it happen. No, I didn't know about that, actually. And it, I guess it wouldn't surprise me. But um, no, I, I thought that Brentford and, and perhaps this is why it didn't happen, were, were adamant that he would be part of their promotion push and, and it nearly paid off. But once uh, they failed in the in the playoff final against Fulham, it was always a case that he and Ollie Watkins would be on their way this summer, provided clubs came up with the right money. Aston Villa actually overpaid slightly to make sure they got Watkins, so that would have delighted Brentford. I think in the meantime, they may have been tempted to sell David Rea to Arsenal, the goalkeeper, but they were able to uh, renew him to a new contract and knowing that Ben Rama was was likely to go too. Now, they would have been factoring for a big fee for him this summer. That hasn't materialised, but at least they've got the loan fee in the meantime and they can hope, in all likelihood, that they'll get the full or the remainder of the fee next summer. And, and nothing against Ben Rama, Liam, but are, are you surprised in any way that it's West Ham 
that have that have bought him uh, only because I suppose twofold. One, it, f- it feels like he's about the 14th player of this type that they've signed in recent <laughs> years. And and also off the back of a controversial sale in the summer when they sold Dean Garner to West Brom and have now spent double what they got for Dean Garner, roughly, I think, on Ben Rama. It is a strange one, particularly because West Ham was so explicit in their reasoning when they were trying to justify to their own supporters selling Grady Diangana. They they were explicit that it was to reinvest that money in improving mm. the defence and that they had, uh, I think it was um, David Sullivan gave an interview where he said they, they had about eight wingers and just had far too many options in those positions. So for them to suddenly make, you know, what is not an inconsiderable investment, even if it is only an initial loan, West Ham have committed a sizable amount of money here in terms of an obligation to buy and, and add-ons as part of this deal on a player that is not necessarily in a position of need. And also I think there's an open question about whether David Moyes necessarily wants a player like Saeed Benrahma, given the way that Felipe Anderson was was kind of frozen out. Yeah. You know, I know Manuel Lanzini scored a great goal against Tottenham, but he's not been featuring too much. A lot of the more creative attacking midfielders at West Ham have not been key to Moyes' plan. So it's interesting to see where Ben Rama fits into all of that. Let's um, move on to Chelsea now. Uh, Antonio Rudiger exclusively told The Athletic last week that he wanted to stay and the club aren't trying to push him out. It's so weird, this, Liam. You, you talk to so many former players in the game. They will tell you that they think Antonio Rudiger is the best centre-half on Chelsea's books. I think a lot of people, when he first arrived, who who believed that as well. And and when he, when he was first signed from Roma, he arrived at an age uh, where people thought he was going to be a key part of Chelsea's defence moving forward. The, the fact of the matter is that Chelsea haven't seen the same level of performance out of him since he... Uh, suffered from from several injury issues and uh, you know he had knee and groin problems last year that disrupted particularly the first half of the campaign he still made 19 Premier League starts and and he was reasonably prominent under Lampard which is why I think his sudden fall from from grace is, is a bit more surprising but Lampard appears to have made up his mind that he just doesn't really trust Rudiger I don't think he particularly trusts the other centre-backs either but Rudiger is at the bottom of the pecking order right now. But it sounds like he blocked a loan move. Well, we've written this in my column. It comes from um, Laurie Whitwell that uh, he blocked a loan move for Kurt Zuma, uh, who I think Everton were interested in once again. Um, Everton had expressed interest in Fikayo Tomori for the second summer in a row. So that was Lampard kind of flexing his authority. And without meaning to stir the pot too much, um, I do think and have reported that people high up at Chelsea equally rate Rudiger as the club's best centre-half, one of the best centre-halves in Europe and were reluctant to let him go. And if they were going to let him go, they wanted to retain his value by ensuring he signed a new contract. Uh, We mentioned in my column on Monday morning that there was a £5 million loan fee for clubs who wanted to take him and they would have needed to cover his wages in full, around £150,000 a week that Laurie Whitwell's reported. Uh, That doesn't appear to be the act of a club who wants rid of this player. It's 
the act of a club that's actually quite reluctant. Yeah, this has the feel of a political stalemate, doesn't it? And we're, we're very much used to those in the history of Chelsea under Abramovich. Lampard did put his foot down with Fakayo Tomori. It would have been much, much easier for him politically to let Tomori, as the youngest and least established centre-back at Chelsea, go to Everton on loan, get a year of experience and then make a decision about him next summer. But instead, he made it very clear and made the point forcefully and repeatedly that um, that Rudiger was the one that w- was was the most expendable to him. And as you as you said, there you know there, there's been pushback from the club on that. And I think after a summer in which you've largely seen Lampard and Chelsea's hierarchy singing from the same hymn sheet in terms of transfers, it's interesting and not a particularly welcome development for him that these kind of tensions have arisen now. And and what we have is an awkward few months in prospect for all parties involved until at least January. Is it fair to point to the fact that we know that Chelsea hire and fire managers more than most other clubs and that if there is um, uh, a fondness of Rudiger or any other player at the top of the club um, but not necessarily in the dugout then the powers that be might not want to let that player go knowing how things may pan out in the future. That that was one thing that was explained to me with Tottenham and, and Ryan Sessegnon. Jose Mourinho didn't see him as part of their plans, but people higher up in the club saw him as part of the club's future. And you know that a manager like Mourinho is probably not going to be around for too many years. And the player that you bought from Fulham for 20-odd, 25 million a year earlier may well prove a key player. So it's actually these clubs taking... So, sort of the power in in squad building ahead of the the coaches, the managers. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, it's the responsibility of club executives to to take the longer view and 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 take the longer view on on assets that maybe transcends the manager who's in the dugout right now. But certainly, I think it's a valid point to say that Chelsea's history of managerial turnover means that that will always be something. I think that's in the back of in the in the back of minds when when these conversations are had and and you could maybe even think from from players perspectives as well that if they're not in favor they might think well I'll just wait and see what happens with the manager a few months down the line can I just quickly ask what happened with Tamori on the international deadline day he nearly went to West Ham but it was his decision in the end by the sounds of it not to go which suggests that Lampard by that point had accepted that Rudiger would be staying and so Tomori perhaps needed to go out for game time but now they're both there yeah yeah that's our understanding that it was very much Tomori's decision to to stay at Chelsea and try to fight for his place Um, and while Lampard would have been aware at that point that, that Rudiger wasn't going anywhere either I think it's it's probably fair to fair to to say that Tamori, part of his justification for that decision would be the conversations he's had with Lampard and and the fact that Lampard has made it so clear that he rates him and and wants to give him an opportunity to to contribute to the team again this season. So I, I don't think Tamori would have made the decision to stay if he didn't think that Lampard was going to give him a fair chance to to compete for minutes. That's great, Liam. Thank you. Brilliant, Liam. Thanks. Thanks, guys. A couple more stories to finish with then. Let's start with the lead from your column, David. And uh, it looks like Danny Ings will stay at Southampton. Yeah, I think that makes sense, Mark, because Danny Ings has only been there, what, a year permanently? 
two years with the the loan from Liverpool. Very settled. We know he's from the, that part of the world anyway. Scoring goals for fun. One of the informed strikers in Europe over the last year or so. He's broken into the England squad. Scored a spectacular goal recently. Uh, under Gareth Southgate, he's flying again at the start of this season. He's fit, which was the biggest problem in his career, especially at Liverpool. And so a new deal to reward that and uh, increase his pay, uh, extend the terms of his deal seems like a sensible move for all parties. It's not done yet. They're close to an agreement. Southampton are relaxed about the situation because they know of his desire um, and they think they've They've offered him a good deal. We don't know about the exact length of it yet. I think that still needs to be ironed out. And also, crucially, the potential inclusion of a release clause. Now, Danny Ings is 28, so does he still have designs on on a shot at, a, a say, a top six club or one of Europe's biggest clubs? He's the sort of striker that is going to be attractive to those clubs. We saw Tottenham come in for him in the summer. It sounded like he had no desire to move at that point and Southampton were unwilling to sell. Manchester United have been linked with him too and a release clause might potentially allow for something like that in the future. But those are the final details that need to be sorted out uh, before he puts pen to paper. And let's uh, just get your thoughts on how you found Arsene Wenger last week when you sat down with him. Your interview uh, with him is on this podcast feed. Yeah, well, if... Anybody hasn't listened to it yet, I'd obviously recommend they go and do so and make their own judgment on on what Arsene was like. I thought he was in brilliant form. Uh, I've been following all of the interviews and media he's done around the release of his book, My Life in Red and White. I went to the Palladium in London on Monday of last week when he was in conversation with Dan Walker. Uh, One thing I've noticed, and, and don't get me wrong, it's all been fascinating and insightful. A lot of the stories that those of us who have covered Arsene Wenger's career and Arsenal over the years already knew about have kind of been retold, um, elaborated on and and gone into greater detail, but nothing massively new. And and to many of us, the book, while very interesting, didn't reveal loads of new information. And without meaning to sound like we did an extraordinarily different interview, he did come out with things in our chat um, that I hadn't heard before, him talking about the signing of... um, Danny Welbeck while he was uh, meeting the Pope in the Vatican. Uh, whilst Arsene was meeting the Pope or Danny Welbeck was meeting while the Arsene Pope? While Arsene was meeting the Pope, right, yeah, well. Danny, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, Danny Welbeck was uh, firmly on England duty and undergoing a medical. And, uh, um, just asking been... the Pope for divine interventions to get away from Louis van Gaal. <laughs> well, you had to get that one in, didn't you? Um, and, uh, you know, other little you, the, he, the tension that developed between him and Arsenal at the end uh, became really clear I pushed him on who at Arsenal uh, who on the board he felt hostility from he didn't want to go down there by naming names but that's something we may hear about more in the future if he is as willing to talk going forward as he was when we sat down because he was very open answering questions on the um, infamous celebration by Emmanuel Adebayor when he joined Manchester City Emanuela Boué leaving the pitch in tears for one match at the Emirates Stadium. There's so much he covered. that He, he, he described his profession as, as being boring and, and we obviously think it's been anything but. Um, but most importantly, I saw a happy and very healthy Arsene Wenger. I was quite surprised at how happy he was because in the book and all the interviews, I've detected quite a lot of sadness, of loneliness. Great humour as always and charisma, but, but certainly something is missing from his life and, and that's 
managing and especially in club management, that day-to-day interaction with the team and with players. He He's throwing himself into his new role at FIFA with everything he has and I'm sure he'll do a brilliant job of it but you sense that he'll never be satisfied until his final days because he always wants to be on the pitch, on the touchline, in the dugout, on the training field, working with players, staff, medics, etc. Mm. And uh, he, he talked to Amy Lawrence as well, and she'll be doing something subsequently. So I don't want to give too much away, but there was a real strong theme that came through about how much non-football work he was having to do by the end of his reign at Arsenal, media commitments, commercial duties, mm-hmm. that was taking away and detracting from the amount of time he was able to dedicate to his craft, to his profession, to his passion, to his love. And that was managing football. And I wonder if that had an effect on results, on on chemistry. There's so much you can go through with Arsene Wenger. Have a listen to to our interview, but also read all the, the other interviews that he's done. Great interview in the Financial Times. As I said, there'll be Amy's piece as well. And you really get a sense of a man who, he really is a great man, a great human being. And, um, and uh, a loss from the Premier League, I think, but a gain to global football from his uh, FIFA role. You've plugged every interview that he's done, bar the one he did with Ooh. me. There. But anyhow, um, oh yeah, um, there's, there's another one everyone to look out for. But Mark should plug his own work. I, I don't have to do that. Um, I know. I interviewed him for Esquire magazine, uh, and um, it was a uh, it was uh, no, it was a it was a um, a, a sit down video chat uh, in person with him, and uh, you'll be able to find that online. And uh, I'm sure there'll be a write up in one of the mag- in one of the future Esquire issues. But the only thing I wanted to say about it was that is the first time that I've actually met him, and I had two mm. hours with him. And I just, I just thought he was a class act from start to finish. And you know as well as I do, when you do these kind of interviews, it isn't so much how they are with you on camera or on microphone when you're doing the interview. It's always, I always find it's you judge uh, people who you interview on how they are with the cameraman or the lighting guy or yeah. the sound woman or the person doing the makeup or whoever, whoever it may be. And both pre and post interview, Arsene Wenger took time to have proper chats about football with everybody who was involved in the process of, of doing that interview. I just thought he was—I just thought he was an absolute class act from from yeah. start to finish. He's a gent, and and towards the end of his Arsenal reign, I felt whenever I saw him, including probably most notably on the final game he took charge of away to Huddersfield he was always being dragged from pillar to post with commitments and and never really focused on the conversations that people were trying to have with him the press conferences etc but really here he was focused and open Um, one of the questions my first question to him was that it's a surprise to many people I've spoken to who know you well that you've actually done so many interviews around this book it's been like a roadshow and very uncharacteristic of him now there's an element of that that you have to do around a book launch but he hasn't shown any sort of from what I've seen any um, disinclination to do so his voice hadn't gone in any way shape or form he was answering all of the questions I threw at him and if we had time if the publishers had, had let us have a little bit longer I would have gone through so much more and I really think he would have answered it all because we continued the conversation after we'd stopped recording covered more themes and and it seemed like he just he wants to talk he wants to open up he he hasn't had that interaction with all of us for a long time I'm not sure he'll want it forever but in this period um he he's he's giving his thoughts and he is a really um 
uh, unique individual. All right, we will end the Arsene Wenger loving there. Uh, thank you very much, David. We will be back <laughs> it's next a pleasure. week. Thank you. Of course, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.